Turn with me in your Bibles this morning to John chapter 13. The Gospel of John chapter 13. Last week we left the Lord Jesus Christ in a room, if you recall, with his disciples where, frankly put, you could hear a pin drop. You see, Jesus dropped a bombshell on these men he loved by telling them that one of the men in the room was a traitor. One of these men would soon reveal themselves to be a turncoat. There's a Benedict Arnold in the room who would soon be revealed not only to Jesus, but to the rest of the disciples. And so tension filled the room. That's where we left off last week. There is a a fear of the unknown for these men. Can you imagine if you were there? What if it's me? What if it's the man to my left? What if it's the man to my right? Or how could this be, Jesus? Jesus utters these words in John 13, 26. He says, It is to he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. John the Apostle reports that when Jesus dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And Scripture tells us that Judas at this point receives the bread, and upon receiving the bread, Satan enters Judas, and Jesus looks him dead in the eye. He says, what you're going to do, do it quickly. One commentator says that when Jesus dismissed Judas with these words, he thereby again decisively manifested his willingness to enter into the deep waters and the dark night of eternal death for his own, that is, his sheep, his elect. The commentator goes on to say that this shows the son desired to be obedient to the will of the father and that he desired to make manifest his glorious love to the elect by suffering And dying for them. Verse 30 says, So after receiving the morsel of bread, that is Judas, he immediately went out, and it was night. Silence. Deafening silence. Mouths wide open. Shock. Horror. Heads bowed. There was an echo in the room, and now that the betrayer has been revealed and has left the room, Jesus Christ can move forward with his disciples. One commentator says that with the dismissal of Judas, now the die was cast. You can look at it this way. The redemptive clock would continue to tick For the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus continues to teach his disciples and he utters some of his last words to his disciples. And these would be words that his disciples would never forget. These would be words at this moment that would be etched onto their minds and sewn onto their hearts for the remainder of their lives. I want to have you stand with me as we read this passage together in John chapter 13, beginning in verse 31. And the story continues. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. 
little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, Father, I pray that you would help us to to enter into the drama of this story. I pray that we would uh, get a sense of what the disciples saw, what the disciples felt, and what the disciples learned. I pray that you would leave us with life lessons today that would uh, transform us, that would change us, that would um, make us into the kind of people that you have called us to be. I pray that you bless this time as we spend the next several minutes studying your word, reading your word, and applying it to our lives. We ask that your spirit would uh, apply the work of God to individual lives today. First, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the title of the message this morning is The Gold Standard of Christian Living. And my hope is that we study together that the Lord Jesus' words would resonate with you just like they resonated with the disciples about 2,000 years ago. My hope is that you would see this morning how Jesus raises the bar and he challenges his followers Not only his disciples, but all subsequent followers, that includes you and I, if we have, like uh, Maria and Aaron, turned from our sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and the completed work that he accomplished on the cross for us, that we too would embrace the gold standard of the Christian life. This morning, I want to do something a little bit different. I want to give you the truth point up front. I want to uh, really lay all the cards on the table, and then we'll take the next several minutes to unpack that truth point. And it goes like this. The gold standard of the Christian life is love for one another. What is it that we are called to do? What is it that we are called to be? And Jesus makes it very, very clear in this passage that the gold standard of the Christian life is that we love one another. Before we dig deeply into this passage, I want you to to look with me, really by way of introduction, at what I'd like to call the wonder of glorification. The wonder of glorification. And Jesus makes three very important statements concerning this idea of glorification. The first emerges in verse 31. He says this, Now the Son of Man is glorified. Now what he is talking about is his death which is imminent. His death is just around the corner. It would take place actually on the next day. And here, the glory of God would be displayed as Jesus extends his arms on that wooden cross. How is Jesus glorified in and through this cross work? Well, the scriptures say that the death that was purchased on the cross, or rather, his death purchased salvation on the cross by satisfying the demands of God's justice for every. 
person who would ever believe. That's how Jesus was glorified through his cross work. Additionally, his death would destroy the power of sin. His death would destroy the power of the devil, so the scriptures teach. There's a second phrase that emerges also in verse 31, and Jesus says this. He says, God now is glorified in Jesus. It's rather cryptic, wouldn't you say? He continues to 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 show us this interplay between himself and between his heavenly Father. God is glorified in Jesus. And so the death of Jesus put the power of God on display. The death of Christ put, as I've already indicated, the justice of God on display. When we consider the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we see, in, in vivid terms, we see the holiness of God on display. And then finally, we see as Jesus dies on the cross for sinners, we see the love of God displayed. There's a final statement that Jesus makes before he continues this very important discourse with his disciples. Jesus says, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify in himself and glorify him at once. And really, Jesus is referring here to the future exaltation of himself. Hold your finger in John chapter 13 and look over with me at the book of Philippians. And Paul the Apostle helps us understand what this glorification will look like. He says in the book of Philippians, in very, once again, very clear terms. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. It says, Therefore God has highly exalted him. That is to say, God the Father has highly exalted God the Son. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Before we continue in this passage, I would challenge you with this, that the Word of God tells us that Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Many of you have come to that place. As Aaron and Maria were baptized this morning, by virtue of their baptism, they have told us, they have shared with us through this, this amazing uh, photograph of baptism that they have turned from their sins and trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, that they have, in so many words, that they have bended the knee to Jesus they have surrendered to Jesus. They have submitted to Jesus. When a person enters the waters of baptism, it's as if they are telling their friends and their family that Jesus is the most important person in my life. I surrender all. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. And the Bible tells us this, that every person will bow the knee to Jesus. There will come a day when Adolf Hitler will bow the knee to Jesus. There will come a day when Joseph Stalin will be on bent knee before Jesus. My prayer is that each of you would bend the knee before it's too late. 
that you would surrender to Jesus and that on this day you would hear the gospel in clear and vivid terms. Simply put, Jesus is telling us this. He told his disciples the glorification of Jesus, which would come in the future, meant this. He would have to depart. He says in verse 33, Little children, and by the way, little children is a, a term of endearment. It's a, it's a term that a, a mother would use with her children that she loves so much as she wraps her arms around them. And so Jesus says, little children, this affectionate term, yet in a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, and now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Can you imagine being numbered among the disciples? I don't know if you're like me, but I'm sure I would have scratched my head and thought, man, I I thought I knew the Old Testament pretty well. But now our master, our Lord, our rabbi, our teacher, our savior is going to leave us. Jesus had instructed them earlier in John chapter 10. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so you can imagine the grief in the room on that evening as the disciples learned that Jesus would depart. They loved Jesus. They had entrusted themselves to Jesus. Yet they are learning one by one, day by day, that his death was not only imminent, his death was necessary. His death was prophesied. And what they will soon learn is that the the most beneficial thing for them would be the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the most loving thing that Jesus could have done for them. And so it is the love that Jesus demonstrates on the cross that really sets the stage for the rest of this passage. Jesus now teaches his disciples and all of his followers, including you and me, He teaches us this central truth, that the gold standard of the Christian life is that we would have love for one another. And so I want to unveil what we would call this morning the gold standard of the Christian life, and I want to show you four very important elements of this very important gold standard. The first is this. We see the mandate to love. We see the mandate to love, and I... I would have you look with me at four additional points that help us to understand what is this all about? What is this mandate to love? The first is this, is this mandate to love is a divine command. This is not a suggestion. This is not on the, the wish list of Jesus. This is a divine command. And what the disciples had learned over the several years they were with Jesus, over the nearly three years that they had gotten to know Jesus, is that... Jesus was fully God and fully man. And as a result, they knew that every command that Jesus gave them had force. It had authority. That is to say, when Jesus says, this is what you need to do, it's as if God himself said, this is the divine command. And so when Jesus says that the gold standard of the Christian life is to love one another. This command comes from God himself. Indeed, it is a divine command. Second, I want you to see that this command is an authoritative command. It should come really as no surprise to any of us that the commandments of Jesus, which were the commandments of God, had the, 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 the air of authority. They were authoritative. And so to oppose a commandment of Jesus, think about that. 
To oppose a commandment of Jesus was the the most foolish thing anyone could ever do. Lordship, you see, is not popular in our culture. We as a people do not like to be told what to do. I don't know if you're like me, but when you go someplace, when there are lots of people that have the, the authority to tell you what to do or what not to do, are you like me and you, just, you would just rather just obey and not have someone come up and tell you you can't do that? Have you ever been to a water park? You go to a water park and it always blows me away that, no disrespect to young people, but a 16-year-old can come up to a 50-year-old and say, you stop doing that. It's just weird. And so when I go to a water park, I just, I just, I'm as good as I can, as I can be. I just, I'm, I'm, ask my kids, I'm, uh, I'm clean as a whistle. Because I don't want a 16-year-old saying, sir, you can't do that. Because something within me goes, I'm going to wring your neck. <laughs> Am I the only one that thinks like that? And so you be good. You be good. Well, here we see that lordship in our culture is not popular We don't like to be told what to do. John Frame reminds us the very nature of liberal theology for the past 300 years has been this, to assert human autonomy. What Frame is trying to suggest is that for the last 300 years in liberal churches and among liberal theologians, the banner truth has been, you're free. Do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. So this is an authoritative command to love one another. I also want you to see that it's a non-negotiable command. This is a non-negotiable command. Have you ever experienced this, parents, with your children? It's time for bed. Yeah, but you need to get to school. Yeah, but you need to help your mother. Yeah, but would you raise your hand if you've ever experienced that? Like all of you. Wow, that's amazing. Usually when I say raise your hand, like two people raise their hand. So we've all experienced this. And so the point is this, is that there are no negotiations with God. When God says to his disciples that you are to love one another, this is the high watermark. This is the gold standard of the Christian life. The disciples could not be placed in a position where they said, well, Jesus, could could we talk about this? You know, I I read The Art of the Deal, Jesus, and I I think it's time that we we negotiate. Well, there are no negotiations with Jesus and his commands. And then most interestingly enough, I want you to see that when we discover the mandate to love is that this is a new command. It's a new command. And in one sense, you might argue that there, there is nothing new about this command whatsoever. The disciples had read the Old Testament, they knew the Old Testament, they'd studied the Old Testament, and so it must have run through their minds that, Lord, Lord, what do you mean a new command? Because Leviticus 19, verse 18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. Why? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now Jesus comes along and says, I got a new one for you. Love one another. If I'm numbered among the disciples, I think to myself, but Jesus, I know your commands are binding. I know your commands are authoritative. I know I can't argue. I know I can't negotiate. But what's new about this command? But there is, in some respects, something new about this command from Jesus. 
The new aspect of the command is this, that the followers of Jesus love one another in the same way that Jesus had loved them. The command that Jesus is is issuing forth to, to each of us today to love one another. It's a new command. You are to love one another in the same way that I have loved you. I don't know what that how that strikes you, but that's a little scary, wouldn't you say? That now we are charged to to love our wives. Wives are to love their husbands, moms and dads are to love their children. Employers and employee relationship, teachers and students that in this culture that we find ourselves a part of, we are called to love one another with the exact kind of love that Jesus has for us. And you, if you're with me, you say the love of Jesus, Pastor, is self-giving, it's self-sacrificial, it's selfless, and I struggle with that kind of love. Before we see what that love entails, I want to have you move with me from the mandate to love to the meaning of love. Just what are we getting ourselves into? Most of you know that the the word love comes from that very popular Greek word, uh, agape or agapao in the verbal form. And it means this, it means to show or demonstrate love to something or someone, in this case, someone. And so, of course, we are very familiar with the command that is set forth in Matthew 22, where the disciples ask Jesus, what's the most important thing? Tell me, Jesus, what's on the final exam? Have you ever done that? Jesus said it's very simple. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We understand that. But now Jesus ups the ante. He says that loving one another, not only, or loving God begins on the vertical plane, loving one another begins on the horizontal plane. And with with you in your, your finger in John chapter 13, I would just urge you to stay there and listen to the multiple passages that surface in the New Testament. Listen and meditate on these words. Matthew 5, 44. But I say to you, Jesus says, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies how? Love your enemies in the same way that Jesus loves you. Matthew twenty two thirty nine. Love your neighbor as yourself. John fifteen twelve. This is my commandment, says Jesus, that you love one another as I have loved you. John fifteen seventeen. These things I command you that you love one another. Romans 12:9 Let love be genuine abhor what is evil hold fast to what is good Romans 12:10 Love one another with brotherly affection And this would be a, a something that you could apply to your life this very instant Romans 12:10 says outdo one another in showing honor You see, what happens so often in our culture and in our churches is we do the opposite. We don't outdo one another in showing honor. We just outdo one another. And to do that is to fail to love one another as Jesus has called us to love. Ephesians 4, 1 and 2. Paul says now, As a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and with patience, bearing with one another in love. Francis Schaeffer used to call this verse the final apologetic. 
And don't think about, oh, I'm so sorry for doing something. That's not the word he's talking about. When he says the final apologetic, he's referring to the defense, the final defense of the Christian faith. See, many of us are accustomed to arguing and making the case for the Christian faith, and that's right and well and good. But Schaefer says, after all the arguing is done, after all the debate is done, after all the points are on the table, this is the final apologetic that Christ fellowship loves one another. Isn't that interesting? Books are written every year on apologetics, and I love them. They're incredible. But the final apologetic is that we, we just, let me start this way, we get along. But it's more than getting along. It's that we embrace what Jesus calls a new commandment. We love one another. And when we love one another, people in Nooksack and Everson and Sumas and Linden and Bellingham go, here's what they do. They go, Dude, have you seen that? They go, dude, weird. The, those people really love each other. When, when a baby is born, meals go to the house. When, when someone has surgery, meals go to the house. And, and people care for, for the sick. And people care for the lonely. And, and people are, are, are together. Dude, that's the final apologetic. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says that the Lord may make you increase and abound in love for one another. Peter the Apostle gets on the fray. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. I want to ask you this morning, does that characterize you? Do you say, I love the people in my sphere of influence with a pure heart. John the Apostle in 1 John chapter 3 says, By this we know love, that he laid his life down for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Isn't that interesting that as John the Apostle writes 1 John, he is echoing the new commandment that Jesus sets forth in John chapter 13. He continues in 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever has been born of God and knows God. Indeed, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I want to move from the meaning of love to the model of love quickly. And we alluded to this, this kind of love, this model of love a few months ago. Where Jesus says, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. We've learned that Jesus' love is self-giving, it's selfless, it's self-sacrificial. And so Paul says this, having this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who, though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Now, if you're putting this together, you're starting to get a little nervous because now you remember the new commandment. Jesus says the new commandment is love one another just as I have loved you. How did Jesus love his disciples? How did he love all his sheep? That's you and I if you're banking all your hope and future in Jesus. He died for us. That's the kind of love he's calling each of us to have. And so if you're honest, your first response will go something like this. I don't think I can do that. I don't think I can pull that off. And so as we move further into the Gospel of John, we will see in coming weeks how, with the help of the Holy Spirit's power, He will enable us to carry out this new commandment, namely, to love one another in the same way that Jesus has loved us. Look at a final thing with me. It's what I would like to call the mark of love. The mark of love, and we've seen this, when we love people, when we love people, what we are doing really through the back door is we're making known our deep and abiding love for the Savior. The words by this point to the action of verse 34. The love we show people on the horizontal plane tells the world that we love God on the vertical plane. Conversely, when we fail to love God, listen, when we fail to really love people, when we fail to love people, we communicate an improper concept of God. We tell our friends and family, this is what God is like, is we fail to love one another. Well, I said a moment ago, I made reference to Francis Schaeffer, uh, one of uh, the most influential writers in my life. He died in the 80s. But almost 50 years ago, Schaefer wrote just a little tiny book. You could, you could read it in a few hours, and I would commend it to you. He wrote a book called The Mark of a Christian. Now, I want to take a minute to highlight a few points from that book in order for us as the people of God to make these uh, thoughts and teachings relevant and tangible in our lives today. There are three thoughts. One is this, loving one another, as we've already seen, is the final proof of the Christian worldview. Loving one another, as Schaefer says, is the final apologetic. When we love one another, the world says, wow, those people are different. Number two, loving one another involves, brace yourself, and if you want to put on your figurative uh, uh, seatbelt, I welcome you to do that. But loving one another involves apologizing when you've made a mistake or you've sinned against your brother and sister. Someone says, if I am not willing to say I'm sorry when I have wronged somebody, especially when I have not shown him love, I have not even started to think about the meaning of a Christian oneness, which the world can see. The world has a right to question whether or not I'm a Christian. The third point Schaefer makes is this, is that loving one another means open forgiveness. Schaefer says that, And if the world does not observe a spirit of forgiveness among true Christians, the world has a right to make two awful judgments, which these verses indicate, that they are not Christians and that Christ was not sent by the Father. And he concludes with this thought, Love and the unity it attests to, is the mark Christ gave Christians to wear before the world. Only with this mark may the world know that Christians indeed 
and that Jesus was sent by the Father. Well, this is the gold standard of the Christian life. The gold standard of the Christian life is simply that we love one another. Here's the big question I have I'll leave you with today. Is is your life a reflection of this great reality? Can you say, yes, I, I am working with all my might to carry out this new commandment to love one another? Or better yet, how can you move closer to this reality this week? Because we are all in this together, are we not? And we all have our rough edges that need to be shaved off. How can we move closer to this reality by God's grace this morning? And what are those rough edges that need to be shaved off of your life and shaved off of your heart? Peter is an example of a man who needed to have the the rough edges shaved off of his life. And we don't have much time to look at verses 36 to, to 38, and we will look at Peter's denial later in our study in the weeks to come. But Peter is a, really a classic example of someone who struggled with sin, who struggled with loving one another. And what's interesting to me is this. After Jesus ushers forth the gold standard of the Christian life to love one another, notice how Peter responds. Notice that Peter doesn't even ask any questions about the gold standard. What is he hung up on? Where are you going to go? He's hung up with Jesus. Where are you going to go? Jesus says to him, where I am going, you can't follow me, but you will follow afterward. Jesus offers Peter hope, I believe, by telling him, you can't come with me now, but you'll be coming later. Peter responds, Lord, why can't I follow you right now? Do you hear the negotiation taking place? But Lord, why not now? I will lay down my life for you. You remember that tension that I alluded to earlier? That the disciples are no doubt freaked out because Jesus just said, you're the man. Go do it quickly. Speaking of Judas. Now that Judas has left the room, the redemptive timetable continues. The clock continues to tick. And with that tension thick in the room, now Jesus says to Peter, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. This morning we have seen the gold standard for the Christian life, which is loving one another. And each of us would admit that we fall short of this commandment on a daily basis. When Jesus tells Peter he will deny him three times, his words ring true, I believe, in my life and in your life. If we're honest, we will admit over the course of our lives that we fail to love as we ought. We fail to live as we ought. We fail to glorify God as we ought. I want you to hear, if you will admit with me, that I, I, I struggle living the Christian life. These words from John MacArthur will breathe life into your soul. He says this, Nothing, nothing, not even their coming defection and denial, nor even their own future deaths would be able to separate them or us from the love of their Lord. Close quote. You see, the Apostle John reminds us about Jesus and his love for us. You remember in John 13, 1, several weeks ago, we learned this. Having loved his own, that is his elect, 
having loved his own who were in the world. You remember this? He loved them to the end. I hope that someone this morning said to yourself, me? He, he will love me to the end? Jesus, do you have any idea of who I am? Jesus, do you have any idea that I break the new commandment every day, yet you will love me to the end? As you allow that great truth to sink in, I want to leave you with two massive truths. These are the things that, that preachers say, if you don't remember anything else, remember this. Here's the first truth. I want to give you a great challenge. A great challenge. And that great challenge is this. The great challenge is that you would carry out the new commandment. That you would commit yourself to love one another. For indeed, this is the gold standard of the Christian life. And since we have already admitted together, or I, I have admitted it for you, that we all fall short on a daily basis and are found wanting, I also want to leave you with not only a great challenge, I want to leave you with a great gospel. Do you have those cataloged in your mind? As you leave today and as you, you talk with your families throughout the week, remember the great challenge to love one another. Man, that's hard. But the great gospel, the great gospel that Jesus, as the God-man, came and lived the life that we could never live. And he died the death that I deserve and you deserve. He did it for you and he did it for me. And as we learned through the portrait of baptism, he was buried. God raised him from the dead. And now he gives life to anyone who will believe and turn from their sins. That is the great gospel. And Jerry Bridges, a man who went to be with the Lord not too many months ago, he says this of the gospel. And I, I offer this to you who say, Pastor, I struggle obeying the new command. I struggle. I'm selfish. I'm filled with pride. I can't do it. And the answer is you can't apart from grace. Bridges says, your worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. I want to have you allow that to sink in. If you're here today and you are wrestling with guilt, you are wrestling with shame, you are wrestling with, well, there are three days this week I didn't read the Bible. I hope God still loves me. Or there are some of you who said, I didn't read the Bible the whole week. In fact, I haven't read it for a month. Your worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. Bridges continues. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. You see, this is the great gospel. This is the great gospel. Bridges says every day of our Christian experience should be a day of relating to God on the basis of his grace alone. God, you don't understand. I screwed up. Live according to his grace alone. God, you don't understand. I, I said something to my wife I'm ashamed of. Live by his grace alone. You don't understand. I, I yelled at my teenager and she didn't deserve it. And it wounded her deeply. 
Live by God's grace alone and take your sin and run to the foot of the cross and know that God offers forgiveness through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. May you rest in the gospel today, not on any work that you can perform because our works are so mired with bad motives. Our works are so mired with, with, with motivations that we don't even know about sometimes. And so may you rest in the hope of the gospel today, realizing that when you do love people in the way that Jesus commands, that it was grace that enabled you to do just that. You can't do it. It's grace that enables you. And when you fail to love, when you fail to obey that new commandment, remember, it is the same gospel that enables and sustains you. The cross is there waiting. The Lord Jesus is waiting to offer forgiveness. And don't we all need it? This is the gold standard of the Christian life. May we commit ourselves as we come to the Lord's table to loving one another by his grace alone and for his glory. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for uh, this exchange between your son and, and the disciples. God, we affirm that you were in control of everything in that room. You were in control of uh, all the things that Judas did and said. You were in control of all the things that Peter did and said. You were in control of each one of those men. Indeed, you were in control of our lives. And so, God, we thank you. We're reminded uh, about the power of the gospel today that enables us to love you and to love one another. And when we fail, we recognize that same gospel sustains us and reminds us that we are numbered among the forgiven. God, I pray if there's anyone here that has never uh, come to the place where they surrendered everything to you based on the completed work of your son on the cross. If you're here this morning and you Uh, have come to the place in your life where you need to be forgiven of your sin, where you need to be made right with God. Know this, that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that you receive forgiveness and have right standing with God. There's nothing you can say, nothing you can do in order to merit favor before a holy God. Simply trust in the Lord Jesus and his completed work on Calvary's cross. So God, as we come to the table... We're reminded of the elements. We're reminded of the bread, which points to the body of Jesus. We're reminded of the grape juice, which is a reminder of the blood that was shed on the cross for us. May we take, may we eat, may we affirm that we are hungry and thirsty apart from all that Christ is for each of us. May we rest in him. May we find our satisfaction in him this day. Amen.